0: Unto this last. Essay 3. Qui Judicatis Teram That Judge the Earth. Some centuries before the Christian era, a Jew merchant, largely engaged in business on the Gold Coast, and reported to have made one of the largest fortunes of his time, but was held also in repute for much practical wisdom, left among his ledgers some general maxims concerning wealth which have been preserved strangely enough, even to our own days. They were held in considerable respect by the most active traders of the Middle Ages, especially by the Venetians, who even went so far in their admiration as to place a statue of the Old Jew on the angle of one of their principal public buildings. Of late, these writings have fallen into disrepute, being opposed in every particular to the spirit of modern commerce. Nevertheless, I shall reproduce a passage or two from them here, partly because they may interest the reader by their novelty, and chiefly because they will show that it is possible for a very practical and acquisitive tradesman to hold, through a successful career, that principle of distinction between well-gotten and ill-gotten wealth, which, partially insisted on in my last paper, it must be our work more completely to examine. He says, for instance, in one place, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. Adding in another with the same meaning, he has a curious way of doubling his sayings. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but justice delivers from death. Both these passages are notable for the assertion of death as the only real issue, and some of attainment by any unjust scheme of wealth. If we read, instead of lying tongue, lying label, title, pretense or advertisement, we shall more clearly perceive the bearing of the words of modern business. The seeking of death is a grand expression of the true course of men's toil in such business. We usually speak as if death pursued us and we fled from it, but that is only so in rare instances. Ordinarily, he masks himself, makes himself beautiful or glorious Not like the king's daughter or glorious within, but outwardly, his clothing of wrought gold. We pursue him frantically all our days, he flying or hiding from us. Our crowning successor three score and ten is utterly and perfectly to seize and hold in his eternal integrity robes, ashes and sting. Again the merchant says, He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches shall surely come to want. And again more strongly, rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the place of business, for God shall spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. This robbing the poor because he is poor is especially the mercantile form of theft, consisting in taking advantage of a man's necessities in order to obtain his labour or property at a reduced price. The ordinary Highman's opposite form of robbery, of the rich because he is rich, does not appear to occupy so often to the old merchant's mind. Probably because being less profitable and more dangerous than robbery of the poor, it is rarely practiced by persons of discretion. But the two most remarkable passages in their deep general significance are the following. The rich and the poor have met. God is their maker. The rich and the poor have met. God is their light. They have met. That is to say, as long as the world lasts, the action and counteraction of wealth and poverty, the meeting face to face of rich and poor, is just as appointed and necessary a law of the world, as the flow of stream to sea, or the interchange of power among the electric clouds. God is their maker. But also, this action may be either gentle and just, or convulsive and destructive. It may be by rage of devouring flood, or by lapse of serviceable wave, in blackness of thunderstroke, or continual force of vital fire, soft and shapeable into love syllables from far away. And which of these it shall be, depends on both the rich and poor knowing that God is their light, that in the mystery of human life there is no other light than this by which they can see each other's faces. Light, which is called in another of the books among which the merchants' maxims have been preserved, the son of justice, of which it is promised that it shall rise at last with healing in its wings. For truly this healing is only possible by means of justice. No love, no faith, no hope will do it. And the mistake of the best men through generation after generation has been of thinking to help the poor by alms-giving, and by preaching of patience or of hope and every other consolatory means except the one thing which God orders from them. Justice. I have just spoken of the flowing of streams to the sea as a partial image of the action of wealth. In one respect it is not partial, but a perfect image. The popular economist thinks himself wise in having discovered that wealth, or the forms of property in general, must go where they are required, that where demand is, supply must follow. He further declares that this course of demand and supply cannot be forbidden by human laws. Precisely in the same sense, and with the same certainty, the waters of the world go where they are required. Where the land falls, the waters flow. The course neither of clouds nor rivers can be forbidden by human will. But, the disposition and administration of them can be altered by human forethought. Whether the stream shall be a curse or a blessing depends upon man's labour and administrating intelligence. For centuries after centuries, great districts of the world, rich in soil and favoured in climate, have laid desert under the rage of their own rivers. Not only desert, but plague-struck. The stream which rightly directed would have flowed in soft irrigation from field to field, would have purified the air, given food to man and beast, and carried their burdens for them on its bosom, now overwhelms the plain and poisons the wind, its breath pestilence, and its work famine. In like manner this wealth goes where it is required. No human laws can withstand its flow. They can only guide it, but this way it shall become water of life, the riches of the hands of wisdom, or on the contrary, by leaving it to its own lawless flow, they may make it, what has been too often the last and deadliest of national plagues, the water which feeds the roots of all evil the necessity of these laws of distribution or restraint is curiously overlooked in the ordinary political economist's definition of his own science. He calls it shortly, the science of getting rich. But there are many sciences as well as many arts of getting rich. Poisoning people of large estates was one employed largely in the Middle Ages. Adulteration of food of people of smaller estates is one employed largely now. The ancient and honourable Highland method of blackmail the more modern and less honourable system of obtaining goods on credit, and the other various improved methods of appropriation, which in major and minor scales of industry, down to the most artistic pocket-picking we owe to recent genius, all come under the general head of sciences or arts of getting rich. So it is clear the popular economist, in calling his science the science par excellence of getting rich, must attach some peculiar ideas of limitation to its character, by assuming he means his science to be the science of getting rich by legal or just means, in this definition is the word just or legal finally to stand. For it is possible among certain nations, or under certain rulers, or by help of certain advocates, that proceedings may be legal, which are by no means just. If therefore we leave at last only the word just in that place of our definition, the insertion of this solitary and small word Will make a notable difference in the grammar of our science. For then it will follow that in order to grow rich scientifically we must grow rich justly and therefore know what is just, so that our economy will no longer depend merely on prudence but on jurisprudence, that of divine not human law. Diligite justitium qui judicatis terum. Ye who judge the earth give diligent love to justice. Which judging or doing judgment in the earth is, requires not of judges only, nor of rulers only, but of all men, a truth sorrowfully lost sight of, even by those who are ready enough to apply themselves to passages in which Christian men are spoken of to be called saints, i.e. to be helpful or healing functions, and chosen to be kings, i.e. to knowing or directing functions. The true meaning of these titles having been long lost through the pretenses of unhelpful and unable persons to saintly and kingly character, and through the popular idea that both the sanctity and royalty are to consist of wearing long robes and high crowns, instead of in mercy and judgment. Whereas all true sanctity is saving power, as all true royalty is ruling power. And injustice is part and parcel of the denial of such power, which makes men as the creeping things, as the fishes of the sea, that have no ruler over them. Absolute justice is indeed no more attainable than absolute truth. But the righteous man is distinguished from the unrighteous, by his desire and hope of justice, as the true man from the false, by his desire and hope of truth. And though absolute justice be unattainable, as much justice as we need for all practical use Is attainable by all those who make it their aim. We have to then examine, in the subject before us, what are the laws of justice respecting payment of labor. No small part, these are the foundations of all jurisprudence. I reduced in my last paper the idea of money payment to its simplest or radical terms. In those terms, its nature and the conditions of justice respecting it can best be ascertained. Money payments, as there stated, consists radically in a promise to some person working for us, that for the time and labour he spends in our service today, we will give or procure equivalent time and labour in his service at any future time when he may demand it. If we promise to give him less labour than he has given us, we underpay him. If we promise to give him more labour than he has given us, we overpay him. In practice, according to the laws of demand and supply, when two men are ready to do the work, and only one man wants to have it done, the two men underbid each other for it, and the one who gets it is underpaid. But when two men want the work done, and there's only one man ready to do it, the two men who want it overbid each other, and the workman is overpaid. I will examine these two points of injustice in succession, but first I wish the reader to clearly understand the central principle lying between the two, of right or just payment. When we ask a service of a man, he may either give it to us freely or demand payment for it. Respecting free gift of service, there is no question at present, that being a matter of affection, not of traffic. But if he demand payment for it and we wish to treat him with absolute equity, it is evident that this equity can only consist in giving him time for time, strength for strength and skill for skill. If a man works an hour for us and we only promise to work half an hour for him in return, we obtain an unjust advantage. If on the contrary, we promise to work an hour and a half for him in return, he has an unjust advantage. The justice consists in absolute exchange, or if there be any respect to the stations of the party, it will not be in favour of the employer. There is certainly no equitable reason in a man's being poor that if he give me a pound of bread today, I should return him less than a pound of bread tomorrow. Or any equitable reason in a man being uneducated, that if he uses a certain quantity of skill and knowledge in my service, I should use less quantity of skill and knowledge in his. Perhaps, ultimately, it may appear desirable, or to say the least gracious, that I should give him in return somewhat more than I received. But at present we are concerned on the laws of justice only, which is that of a perfect and accurate exchange one circumstance only interfering with the simplicity of this radical idea of just payment, that inasmuch as labour, rightfully directed, is fruitful, just as a seed is, the fruit, or interest as it is called, of the labour first given, or advanced, ought to be taken into account, and balanced by an additional quantity of labour in the subsequent repayment. Supposing the repayment to take place at the end of the year, or of at any other given time, this calculation could be approximately made. But as money, payment involves no reference to time, it being optional with the person paid to spend what he receives at once or after any number of years. We can only assume generally that some slight advantage must in equity be allowed to the person who advances the labour, so that the typical form of bargain will be, if you give me an hour today, I will give you an hour and five minutes on demand. If you give me a pound of bread today, I will give you 17 ounces on demand, and so on. All that is necessary for the reader to note is, the amount returned is at least in equity, not to be less than the amount given. The abstract idea then of just or due wages, as respects the labourer, is that they will consist in a sum of money, which will at any time procure for him at least as much labour as he has given, rather more than less. And this equity or justice of payment is, observe, wholly independent of any reference to the number of men who are willing to do the work. I want a horseshoe for my horse. Twenty smiths or twenty thousand smiths may be ready to forge it. Their number does not in one atom's weight affect the question of the equitable payment to the one who does forge it. It costs him a quarter of an hour of his life and so much skill and strength of arm to make the horseshoe for me. Then, at some future time, I am bound in equity to give a quarter of an hour some minutes more maybe, of my life, or of some other persons at my disposal, and also as much strength of arm and skill, and a little more, in making or doing what the smith may have need of. Such being the abstract theory of just remunerative payment, its application is practically modified by the fact that the order of labour given in payment is general, while the labour received is special. The current coin or document is practically an order on the nation, for so much work of any kind, and this universal applicability to immediate need renders it so much more valuable than the special labour can be, that an order for a less quantity of this general toil will always be accepted as a just equivalent for a greater quantity of special toil. Any given craftsman will always be willing to give an hour of his work in order to receive command over half an hour or even much less of national work. The source of uncertainty together with the difficulty of determining the monetary value of skill, renders even the approximate ascertainment of the proper wages of any given labour in terms of currency a matter of considerable complexity, but they do not affect the principles of exchange. The worth of the work may not be easily known, but it has a worth, just as fixed and real as the specific gravity of a substance, though such specific gravity may not be easily ascertainable when the substance is united with many others. Nor is there so much difficulty or chance in determining it, as in determining the ordinary maximum and minimum of vulgar political economy. There are few bargains in which the buyer can ascertain with anything like precision that the seller would have taken no less. Or, the seller acquire more than a comfortable faith that the purchaser would have given no more. This impossibility of precise knowledge prevents neither from striving to attain the desired point of greatest vexation and injury to the other, nor from accepting it for a scientific principle that he is to buy for the least and sell for the most possible, though what the real least or most may be he cannot tell. In like manner, a just person lays it down for a scientific principle that he is to pay a just price, and without being able to precisely to ascertain the limits of such price, will nevertheless strive to attain the closest possible approximation to them. A practically serviceable approximation he can obtain, because it is easier to determine scientifically what a man ought to have for his work than what his necessities will compel him to take for it. His necessities can only be ascertained by the empirical, but is due by analytical investigation. In one case you try to answer to the sum like a puzzled schoolboy till you find one that fits. In the other, you bring out your result within certain limits, by process of calculation. Supposing then that the just wages of any quantity of given labour to have been ascertained, let us examine the first result of just and unjust payment, when in favour of the purchaser or employer, i.e. when two men are ready to do the work, and only one wants to have it done. The unjust purchaser forces the two to bid against each other, till he has reduced their demands to the lowest terms let us assume that the lowest bidder offered to do the work at half its just price. The purchaser employs him and does not employ the other. The first or apparent result is therefore that one of the two men is left out of employ or to starvation, just as definitely as by the just procedure of giving a fair price to the best workman. The unjust hirer employs both no more than the just hirer. The only difference, in the outset, is that the just man pays sufficiently the unjust man insufficiently for the labour of the single person employed. I say in the outset for this first or apparent difference is not the actual difference. By the unjust procedure, half the proper price of the work is left in the hands of the employer. This enables him to hire another man at the same unjust rate on some other kind of work and the final result is that he has two men working for him at half price and two are out of employ. By the just procedure, the whole price of the first piece of work goes into the hands of the man who does it. No surplus being left in the employer's hands, he cannot hire another man for another piece of labour. But by precisely so much as his power is diminished, the hired workman's power is increased. That is to say, by the additional half of the price he has received, which additional half he has the power of using to employ another man in his service. I will suppose for the moment the least favourable, though quite probable case. That though justly treated himself, he will yet act unjustly to his subordinate and hire at half price if he can. The final result will then be that one man works for the employer at just price, one for the workman at half price and two, as in the first case, are still out of employ. These two, as I said before, are out of employ in both cases. The difference between the just and unjust procedure does not lie in the number of men hired, but in the price paid to them, and the persons by whom it is paid. The essential difference, that which I want the reader to see clearly, is that in the unjust case, two men work for one, the first hirer. In the just case, one man works for the first hirer, one for the person hired, and so on, down or up through the various grades of service, the influence being carried forward by justice and arrested by injustice. The universal and constant action of justice in this matter is therefore to diminish the power of wealth in the hands of one individual, over masses of men, and to distribute it through a chain of men. The actual power exerted by the wealth is the same in both cases, but by injustice it puts it all in one man's hands, so that he directs at once and with equal force the labour of a circle of men about him. By the just procedure, he is permitted to touch the nearest only, through whom with diminished force, modified by new minds, the energy of the wealth passes on to others and so until it exhausts itself. The immediate operation of justice in this respect is therefore to diminish the power of wealth, first in acquisition of luxury, and secondly in exercise of moral influence. The employer cannot concentrate so much labour on his own interests, nor can he subdue so many minds to his own will but the second operation of justice is no less important. The insufficient payment of the group of men working for one places each under a maximum of difficulty in rising above his position. The tendency of the system is to check advancement, but the sufficient or just payment, distributed through a descending series of offices or grades of labour, gives each subordinated person fair and sufficient means of rising in the social scale if he chooses to use them and thus not only diminishes the immediate power of wealth, but removes the worst disabilities of poverty. It is on this vital problem that the entire destiny of the labourer is ultimately dependent. Many minor interests may sometimes appear to interfere with it, but all branch from it. For instance, considerable agitation is often caused in the minds of the lower classes when they discover the share which they nominally and to all appearance actually pay out of their wages in taxation. I believe 35 or 40%. This sounds very grievous, but in reality the labourer does not pay it, but his employer. If the workman had not to pay it, his wages would be less by just that sum. Competition would still reduce them to the lowest rate at which life was possible. Similarly, the lower orders agitated for the repeal of the corn laws, thinking they would be better off if bread were cheaper never perceiving that as soon as bread was permanently cheaper, wages would permanently fall in precisely that proportion. The Corn Laws were rightly repealed, not however because they directly oppressed the poor, but because they indirectly oppressed them in causing a large quantity of their labour to be consumed unproductively. So although unnecessary taxation oppresses them, through destruction of capital, but the destiny of the poor depends primarily always on this one question of dueness of wages. Their distress, irrespective of that caused by sloth, minor error or crime, arises on the grand scale from the two reacting forces of competition and oppression. There is not yet, nor will yet for ages be, any real overpopulation in the world, but a local overpopulation necessarily shows itself by pressure of competition, and the taking advantage of this competition by the purchaser to obtain their labour unjustly cheap, consummates at once their suffering and his own. For in this, as I believe in every other kind of slavery, the oppressor suffers at last more than the oppressed, and those magnificent lines of the Pope, even in all of their force, fall short of the truth. Yet to be just to these poor men of pelf, each does but hate his neighbour as himself, damned to the mines, an equal fate betides the slave that digs it, and the slave that hides. The operations of justice in this matter I shall examine hereafter, proceeding then to consider within what practical terms a justice system may be established and ultimately the vexed question of the destinies of unemployed workmen. Lest, however, the reader should be alarmed at some of the issues to which our investigations seem to be tending, as in their bearing against the power of wealth they have something in common with those of socialism. I wish him to know in accurate terms one or two of the main points which I have in view. Whether socialism has made more progress amongst the army and navy, where payment is made on my principles, or among the manufacturing operatives, who are paid on my opponent's principles, I leave it to you to ascertain and declare. Whatever their conclusions may be, I think it is necessary to answer for myself only this, that if there be any one point insisted on throughout my works more frequently than others, the one point is the impossibility of equality. My continual aim has been to show the eternal superiority of some men to others, sometimes even of one man to all others, and to show also the advisability of appointing such persons or persons to guide or lead, or on occasion even to compel and subdue their inferiors, according to their own better knowledge and wiser will. I advocate the secure possession of property and whereas it has long been known and declared that the poor have no right to the property of the rich, I wish it also to be known and declared that the rich have no right to the property of the poor, but that the working of the system which I have undertaken to develop would in many ways shorten the power both of wealth as the lady of pleasure and capital as the lord of toil. I do not deny, on the contrary I affirm it in all joyfulness, knowing that the attraction of riches is already too strong as their authority is already too weighty for the reason of mankind. Nothing in history has ever been so disgraceful to human intellect as the acceptance among us of the common doctrines of political economy as science. I have many grounds for saying this, but one of the chief may be given in few words. I know no previous instance in history of a nation establishing a systematic disobedience to the first principles of its professed religion. The writings which we verbally esteem as divine not only denounce the love of money as the source of all evil and as an idolatry abhorred of by the deity but declare this evil service to be the accurate and irreconcilable opposite of God's service. And whenever they speak of riches absolute and poverty absolute declare woe to the rich and blessings to the poor. Whereupon we forthwith investigate a science of becoming rich as the shortest road to national prosperity.